Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, we visit Loophead Lighthouse in County Clare, and we hear from the new owners of that famous Irish yacht, Northabout. Loophead Lighthouse sits at the mouth of the Shannon and is one of 65 lighthouses around the coast operated by the Commissioners of Irish Lights. The present building has been a beacon of light for ships since 1854, but today it mainly helps to guide cargo vessels up and down the Shannon estuary. Noel Sweeney met former lighthouse attendant Stephen Roan, who told him about the early days of the Loop and about what life was like working in a lighthouse. Loophead Lighthouse sits at the tip of County Clare and at the very end of the Loophead Peninsula. It was open to visitors from 2011 through to 2020, but it has been closed since the restrictions kicked in last year. Renovations are happening on the old Lightkeeper's House, which is set to become a holiday home and a brand new visitor centre. For years, Stephen Rowan worked as an attendant at a nearby lighthouse farther along the Shannon Estuary. He now works as a tour guide at the Loophead Lighthouse. We chatted under Loopheads, rotating Fresnel lens and its 1000 watt bulb. He began by telling me about the Loop's unique character signal. One flash every five, four flashes every 20 seconds. That's the character of Loophead Lighthouse. So each one on the west coast had a different sequence. So that's how ships recognised one lighthouse from another. And that's going back hundreds of years long before GPS was invented. So you can imagine a ship coming in off the Atlantic, after travelling across the whole thousands of miles, they might not be exactly sure where they were. So when they would come near the lighthouse, they would just time the light, go to their book, and they knew exactly where they were and what lighthouse, whether they were in the right place or the wrong place. So it was a simple sort. You, 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 you got a character of that light by simply the rotation of the lens. And then uh, there's a number, there's actually four blank panels above on top of the lighthouse. Four blank panels and the rest are glass where it flashes out. So as you rotate, the, the, the light stays stationary. It's the rotating the lens that gives it a flash. So if you have blank panels, you'll go around and then you'll have, a, you'll have a blank spot, you'll have a darkness until the light comes back onto the glass again. So you can change that sequence by the number of blank panels you have on the, the dome or the lens and the speed you rotate your lens at. You can change your speed. You can speed it up or slow it down. So that's how they each, every lighthouse had a different character or flash sequence. But one wasn't the same as another one. It's quite likely that the rotating bulb above us will at some point be replaced by a modern LED lamp. The lighthouses are changing, technology is constantly changing. Anyone that would have watched that uh, program on the Great Lighthouses of Ireland and RT would see how the, it's constantly evolving. As technology changes, lights change. So at the moment we're on an ordinary bulb here and a rotating lens, a Fresnel lens, so the bulb will actually change to an LED lamp which is more cost effective, more energy efficient. So it actually, it goes on and off itself. So that shape, it saves electricity. Now, a lot of the lenses are actually being replaced by uh, just an LED lamp. Now, hopefully this one will be kept. We 
some of the larger uh, rotating Fresnel lenses are being decommissioned. One of the most recent ones to be done was Fastnet Rock. That was done over a year ago. So it's, there's no longer a lens rotating. There's actually a LED lamp flashing on top of the dome of the lighthouse. And that's the new light. Dooped. It's a fairly unique sounding title for a townland. So where does the name come from? The legend of the story goes back to Cullen. And he was uh, hunting up the country and he was being pursued by Mel. She was supposed to have been a witch and he was afraid that she was going to cast a spell on him so he would marry her. So he actually took off, took to the hills of the Vesely and she, she chased him down here all the way down on the, the coast, the south coast and, and uh, he ended up here out on the, the mouth, the headland at Loophead. And right at the tip of Loophead here, there's a, a sea stack cut off, sitting out from the, from the mainland. So he actually jumped out onto that sea stack, Cocollum, and she jumped out after him. Then he jumped back again. She tried to jump back, and she was actually fell down between the, the, the crevice of, of the sea stack and was killed and drowned. So that's where it got the name Leaphead. So over the years, then the name has changed or morphed into Loophead. When was this built uh, exactly? The present tower you're in here at the moment was built in 1854. This is actually the third structure back here. Loupet Light was the first one established on, on the, I say, the Shannon Estuary. So the light goes back to 1670, would you believe? So it goes quite a way back. The original structure was just a little cottage. Most of them in those years were just fires on top of roofs of small buildings or houses. So the lightkeeper actually maintained a fire on top of a roof on a stage, so pretty basic then. Thomas Rogers designed the first proper lighthouse here that was established, it was built in 1802. So you could call this, call it a smaller version of this one. So that was a smaller lighthouse. And then they decided they need a larger one being on the gateway to the, to the Shannon to Limerick. So they commissioned a new lighthouse to be built and this one was completed in 1854. Who built and designed this lighthouse? Well, George Halpin designed. He designed over over 23 lighthouses, would you believe, around the coast of Ireland. So he would have designed, he was the architect. So you can see it's a, it's a pretty solid structure. It's not as uh, exposed as some of the ones, but it takes a fair battering from the wind and the rain, so it's solid limestone. Um, they would have had to bring that in from down the river from Limerick as you won't get limestone in West Clare you've got to go either go to East Clare or North Clare now the steps you're standing on they're granite that's from Wicklow they use granite for steps because it's more hard wearing so as you can see it's climbing up and down here over the years a lot of leg keepers have climbed up and down here so if you had limestone steps they'd be much more worn than a little bit of a, a bow or a valley in them it's a softer stone what type of light would have been the original light installed in that building? The original light would have been a, a paraffin lamp. Uh, so you would actually light the paraffin aisle and there was a burner. And then the lens, now the lens we have here is, 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 is uh, the early 1900s, but there would have been some other lenses before that. So it would have been flashing a fixed lamp, not a rotating one. So it would give out a light on one side and light on another side. And that's how the ships would uh, navigate up the estuary. The, this one was, would, you could say, it was the gateway to Shannon Estuary. So they, they knew when they arrived here, and, and, and you could say, time the light. 
the character of the light, the flash sequence, they knew they were in the mouth of the Shannon. So if ships were going up to the north of Ireland, Scotland, they would keep going up further. Or if they were passing down from the north, they would pass out here, and this would be one of the last ones they would see before they would head out into the Atlantic. If we go north, uh, what would be the next uh, lighthouse north of here? The next one would be a small little lighthouse on the, the, the Bullen, Black Hit. So then the next larger ones would be on the Arden Islands. And the next largest one going south would be? South would be in Ishtirit. It's on the Blasket, one of the Blasket Islands. That would be the next one. Then you would have, um, you would have uh, Skellig, Skellig Michael. I'm originally from North Kerry, so I, I would often see the beam kind of, you know, particularly on a, on a clear night or a quiet night, it would just kind of itch up over like the, the nearest headland and I find it amazing, really. How far away can this beam be seen? This beam can be seen 23 nautical miles. So a nautical mile is actually 1.2 land miles. It's slightly longer. So it could even be pushed out further if they wanted to. So it goes out basically to the horizon. So ships can pick it up coming around the corner from the Kerry coast. From your understanding, how significant are lighthouses today given like the, you know, I suppose the very sophisticated navigation systems that most ships would have these days? Well, they're not as critical, obviously, going back hundreds of years. Like our lighthouses were all the ships had to rely on for navigation. So nowadays they have quite a lot more with uh, GPS and radar. So they're not as critical as they were, but they still perform a role. You could say another option. Everything breaks down, so you never know when GPS might malfunction. So lighthouses have to be kept going, you could say, as another alternative to um, GPS. The Loop is one of just three lighthouses in Ireland to broadcast what's called a Differential Global Positioning Systems Signal, or DGPS, which is an enhancement on the more common GPS signal. We have uh, one here at Loop, there's one at Mizzenhead in County Cork, and then there's another one up in Tory Island in County Donegal. So they're interlinked, and that sharpens the accuracy of the, of the, the readings, the, the positioning down to, you could say, the top of your finger. They can pinpoint the ships exactly where they are, down to the last minute detail. So it just makes the little, their readings that little bit more accurate. It's, on, it's another layer on top of the ordinary GPS, that's why it's called differential global positioning satellite system. Has Lupet been affiliated with any major disasters or rescues over the years? No, it hasn't really. The, um, strangely enough, Lupet here, the, 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 it's not as dangerous for shipping as when you move up the estuary. Very high cliffs here and there's not too many reefs. But as you move up by the Kelly Coast, Ballybunion, Beale Strand, you have a lot of sandbanks and uh, dangerous, you could say, reefs that the ships could actually go aground. So, so it's the further up you go, the, the channel gets narrower, it's tidal, and there's sandbanks. So it, 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 this was more of, um, you could say, a landmark to the mouth of the estuary, a guide to the Shannon estuary that you're entering. And I suppose today, the, the main traffic, of course, would be industrial um, cargoes, essentially. Yes, the Vines and Limerick would be very high on most of their uh, bulk would be cargo. You wouldn't get too many containers, so uh, it's very busy for container ships and bulk cargoes. Like so many lighthouse workers, Stephen's connection to the job goes back to the generation before him. 
Well, I took over from my father, basically, as attendant in 1988, Kilgordan Lighthouse. So he was attendant at Kilgordan Lighthouse for over 30 years, so I was actually brought up at the lighthouse from a young kid. Where is the lighthouse exactly? It's, it's near Cargo Holt. As you look across the estuary, on the clear side, you look straight across, you'll be looking into Ballybunion Beach. And, and uh, you can see the you can see the cliffs of Dunedin pretty close as well. So it, it's it's about halfway up the estuary before between Calico Halt before you get to Kilrush and Tarbert. Yeah, there was like keepers at Kilcredan up to the 1930s, so it became one watched in much like Tarbert and Scattery Island. Was, this one here at Lutbed was the only one that had full-time light keepers here up to 1991. They were classed as part-time jobs, so being a farmer as well, my father was a part-time lighthouse attendant. So he minded the lights. He retired in 1988 and I took over for him until it closed in 2011. It was just really a coincidence really that when the lighthouse closed at Kilgordan, about three or four months later, Lupe had opened and I was asked to become a guide here. So it was, it was just, you were moving from one lighthouse and walking in another lighthouse. When you worked as an attendant, what was your routine like? Well, in my father's time, we, we had to make gas with car, calcium carbide, so there was, would have been a lot of, um, actually, work more involved in those years, but uh, when I took over, it was electrified. So it was basically checking equipment, monitoring systems, and uh, making sure everything was running uh, smoothly. Now, you didn't have to be up all night, the light ran itself. We had an alarm in the house if something failed, so would, we could say, wake you and, and uh, get you to do something, but it, it, it's, the maintenance wasn't that severe in those in, in that time it was pretty ran its head basically. Are you excited for the new for the new developments here? Yes, because it, it's a big it has put uh, you could say Lopez on the map and uh, a lot of people come back here, a lot of tourists, continentals, hopefully next year. We'll be back online again and uh, we'll be getting roughly over 34,000 people every year. That was our last um, projection, so uh, we're hoping to do well again next year when things are up and running. Noel Sweeney with former Lighthouse attendant Stephen Rowan at Lupe Lighthouse. And the music on that piece was The Lobster by The Gloaming. An Irish yacht which circumnavigated the North Pole twice has taken on a new life as part of a project to highlight climate breakdown. Tobias Carter and his partner Sophie Simonon have purchased the 47-foot aluminium yacht Northabout as a platform for their charity Unumondo. The couple have already sailed the boat to Greenland and are third owners of the yacht, which was originally built by award-winning Mayo sailor Jarlath Canaan. Back in 2001, Jarlath and his crew took north about through the northwest and east passages over several seasons, becoming the first yacht to do so. And it subsequently took another similar trip with its next owner. Lorna Siggins spoke to the new owner, Tobias Carter, while he was on his way to boat shows in Europe. So my name's Tobias Carter. I was born on the island of Jersey. I'm 32 years old. I grew up in France. I moved over across when I was young with my family. I am not a long-term sailor. I was in construction, so I'm pretty handy at repairing stuff, which uh, helps when you're trying to run a boat. 
but yeah, I was in building and timber frame house construction for uh, as a project manager for many years. I only got into sailing about four years ago, I guess, when I was in Australia on a long trip. I had one sailing experience about ten over ten years ago, and uh, had enjoyed it, and I'd always wished to do it again. So when I was living in Brisbane, I bought a twenty-two foot Swanson. It's called a Dart. And uh, with a few friends and practiced uh, every weekend almost with that and, uh, and a week here and there in between jobs. That was it. I um, got on a boat when I left Australia for a bit of practice on somebody else's yacht up to Asia. And I ended up being inspired by uh, an American called Dustin Ray that I spent a few months with living next door on on, on another boat. I was going to cross to Africa to the uh, the Indian Ocean on a boat and I ended up being inspired by him and uh, bought my own boat and, uh, and set off. Dustin is uh, almost finished. He's about to become the first double amputee to circumnavigate the world. And then you bought the Irish Polar Yacht North about. Yeah, so I bought... Um, first boat in Thailand, sailed that across Madagascar, South Africa, Brazil, Caribbean and back to France and uh, I met Sophie on the way in uh, South Africa. Got back uh, in July and in September we were already uh, launching the the project and, uh, and somehow we managed to raise the money, uh, build the project, uh, bought North about in January and uh, left uh, the French coast uh, early July, straight to Greenland. So that was in the middle of the pandemic in 2020? Yeah, yeah. Well, when we bought North About, it was January, so we didn't know at that point. But we got very lucky. Um, North About was, uh, through one of David's contacts, was sponsored in a commercial port in Avonmouth, just outside of Bristol. And um, so all marinas were closed, but commercial ports were obviously open. And so they allowed us... uh, to keep working and um, we managed to repair the boat during the the first lockdown and uh, set off just as it uh, everything opened up and um, it was all pretty crazy pretty hectic Um, when we bought North about she was sitting on the dry with the mast on the floor and a hole in the uh, centerboard so she was a sinking boat so it took us over three months to get her afloat we put her in the water once and she was still taken on water took her back out another month's work we had planned to leave from france late may 31st of may was uh, was our planned uh, date early june we were still in bristol in avonmouth but the boat was no longer sinking and um and we took her on her um, first trip straight down to france to pick up the crew we spent in the end a month in france doing final preparations getting the crew on board and waiting for a weather window to head uh, straight to Greenland. It wasn't possible to stop anywhere, including Ireland, where we would have liked to have stopped. Uh, So it took us 14 days from the French coast straight across to Greenland with half of our crew had never um, set foot on a boat. I had no high latitude experience whatsoever. I'd only been sailing for three years at that point. My previous boat was a 36 footer uh, you know weighing six tons so going up to something like north about is a big challenge and it's definitely a, a very very different boat a different power but uh, she's a great boat and she took uh, good care of us and, uh, and everything went well <laughs> and tobias you have a very interesting mix of crew yeah so the whole purpose of the project for us is to highlight climate change climate change is happening faster in certain areas than others and so it's more visible and so the place on earth where it's happening the fastest is the arctic and so 
that's where we thought, well, we'll go up there and highlight it. So we collect testimonies from scientists working in the area and from the local people that live and see these changes year by year. It's happening so fast up there. Yeah, last year we left, we had a, a scientist uh, on board from the University of Liège and we had about four different scientific programs. We were the sailors, but my construction background helped out quite a bit for installing the weather stations. It was free weather stations in the south of Greenland that we had to install ourselves just with the help of Michael, the onboard uh, electrical engineer that was with us for that. And then interviews, so we've got a whole film crew. Uh, so we had two cameramen filmmakers on board last year and it was a really 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 good success uh, quite a lot of media attention as well incredible and so we, we've kept going this year we um, circumnavigated Iceland a bit less far a bit less challenging but Iceland is extremely impacted by by climate change too it's in the sort of tipping point in between the Gulf Stream and the cold waters coming down from Greenland and the glaciers there are, are not going to last 150 years so um, lots and lots of stories interesting things to cover. And what sort of reaction did you encounter in Greenland? Do they feel that people like us south of them are not taking climate breakdown seriously, perhaps? They don't tend to worry too much in uh, in Greenland. There are people that adapt very well. It's not a big, big issue, actually, for them, or at least in the south where, where we were. It's not quite the same impacts that you get in the north. They don't blame people. They understand it more and more. One of the things that did shock us was you don't get any... Um, any trumps you don't get any climate uh, sceptics people denying climate change you know we went into a few classrooms there and you tell the kids you know uh, do you know anything about climate change you know have you seen anything uh, you know and they tell you you know you you don't need to tell us uh, you know we know we heard that quite a few times so um different impacts a lot less sea ice loads of changes that are more much more visible than where we are in ireland or in in france or the uk and so their way of living is already being affected yes yeah especially much more in the north where their, their sea ice is gone uh, they can't move from village to village they're going from hunters to to fishermen because there's no ice anymore instead of having an ocean frozen solid for six months of the year it, it's only three months and it still can be dangerous at times big big changes resources also being more and more accessible um and more, a lot more tourism, which is one of the things they're sort of happy about in a way, because they need jobs and money. Their main worries are more a bit like uh, ours, I guess, you know, jobs and just uh, living. Tourism is a big thing in the last five, ten years. You know, everybody wants to go see the bears before they disappear. They want to they see everything before it melts. So um, there are positive things for them as well. Well, there's a lot of different uh, resources there. They're only scratching, I think, the, the surface and... Uh, and ships can get in for most of the year now and on the i mean the west coast is very accessible the south the east is a different story but um they know that in a few more years and some areas where there are some big big deposits will be accessible so it's a big debate in greenland you know there's huge potential for hydroelectric power one of the projects we were on there was for wind power uh, potentially for installing large quantities of wind farms and obviously the the big debate the last few years has been the uh, the rare earth mines particularly the one in the south where we visited uh, the village of nasak it's sort of a 50 50 uh, from what we understand it's a town of 3,000 people that we visited uh, they're pretty much all against it obviously it was an old uranium mine that the Danes used about uh, 40 years ago I believe it was closed rare earth is quite usually it's usually mixed 
in uranium, which means it's usually very polluted to, to get it out to extract it. So it's a big open pit mine. And so the locals are against it, but uh, everybody up in the capital is obviously for its money. And so they want their independence uh, from Denmark, then they need a strong economy. When they voted last, the uh, government got in that are against the project. They also um, know how lucky they are to have such a beautiful and pristine environment, really. And how are you funding the Unumondo project and the voyages you're undertaking? It's a mix. Um, last year, our scientific partners, uh, University of Liège, were our, our largest contributor. And then we have sponsors. It's been mostly a lot of technical sponsors, so anything that we need, instead of purchasing it, we uh, we try and find the three or four different companies that make it. So last year, I think it was about 60,000 euros worth of uh, equipment that was donated. This year, uh, we've got a few more financial partners. Um, we're now getting funding on our educational projects, which is a big part of what we do, from foundations and government funding in France just about to start hiring so at this point it's about a team of 20 people and uh, we're all still all volunteers at this stage so we're doing uh, two boat shows back to back right after the expedition but a lot of work but it's really the whole purpose of what we what we do there's no point in going up there just to sail the most important is what we do when we come back to to show people what's happening yeah i'm really excited to get to southampton and uh and la rochelle this will be talking to the sailing community that uh, obviously know how the and understand that the oceans are, are changing, the climate is changing. As sailors, we're, we're closer to to our environment than, than most, uh, I'd like to think, but we're still uh, far from uh, environmentally friendly. I mean, uh, we know our boats are not the perfect way of getting around. We all have our issues, but um, I think it'll be a great, uh, great to exchange. And um, people are obviously very interested about the Arctic, the famous Northwest and Northeast passages. So um, North About is the perfect, uh, the perfect story. And that was the new Northabout owner, Tobias Carter, with Lorna Siggins. The climate change charity he's founded with Sophie Simonon is unumondo.org. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme is podcast. It's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the programme, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.